Red. We're back from break. Um, it was just kind of nice to sit back once in a while. I, I, it's starting to be part of what I enjoy about podcasting is a time away from the mic that you get to spend with people. So it was a short break, but we, we're kind of a little more focused now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> we kind of have an idea of like, here's what we definitely need to hit related to what we've already discussed in the first half. So the first thing you wanted to go over was... Well, so we're going to be talking about now after the the passage of the NFA, we're going to be talking about some ways that its impact has changed. 1934, it's passed when the NFA regulated uh, machine guns. It regulated short-barreled rifles. That's any rifle under the under with a barrel length of under 18 inches and an overall length of under 26 inches. Short-barreled uh, rifles. Did I say rifles that time? Previously, you did, yes. Okay, so short-barreled rifles and short-barreled shotguns under that original version of the NFA, um, the one that passed, was 18 inches of barrel length, overall in, uh, length of 26 inches. And then there were suppressors that were also regulated. And then uh, what they classified And by regulated, as, you just mean that you have to pay a tax stamp right, for it you have and have to a background check. That exactly, kind of and that's the same thing with any of these items. Um, and then you also have any other weapon, which any other weapon really means anything that doesn't fall into those categories. And the main purpose of that was they had things like wrist guns and cane, gun, cane guns, guns like that were disguised as canes, uh, all kinds of things that were in that nature that were concealable guns that they were concerned about. A lot of this was revolved around uh, being able to conceal firearms and the fear of criminals doing that. So did this NFA encompass things like, you know, you had people that were coming back from the war, right? That still had access to war related things like uh, hand grenades. You hear stories even now of, you know, people like, oh man, I was going through grandpa's stuff. And uh, yeah, there was a live grenade in his, you know, keepsakes. So explosives <laughs> were not covered at all at the, by the original NFA. Okay. Like hand grenades, dynamite, um, mortars, and anything explosive rounds none of that none of that was covered by the original nfa um again it wasn't something that was being used in the crimes but that didn't stop some of the other things that were banned but um that that wasn't something that they were really it didn't have the public optics around it right it didn't so moving forward they had the uh, all of these things were were banned the the, any other weapon short-barreled rifle short-barreled shotguns suppressors and, and machine guns now the thing is, is that you had to pay a $200 stamp for any of those, except for the any other weapon. Any other weapon was a $5 tax stamp. Okay. So much less concerned about that one. Uh, but they, any time that that transferred, that had to have that, that stamp. The new person had to... Had to buy the new stamp for right, that. Right. Um, and there were some problems that resulted in, uh, from that, some some uh, Supreme Court challenges. Um, and I was going to say, like, this kind of leads in, anytime I hear about laws that pass, the first thing that I start going to is like, okay, how is it enforced? <laughs> because that's ultimately what the law is, is when it's, when it's alive, is when it's being enforced. And so how is it being enforced? How was... Uh, like who is the body that was enforcing it and how did this end up in the Supreme court's hands at any point? So again, because this was done as a, uh, they were trying to do this as a tax. This was all under the treasury department. Okay. So the, 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 the bureau of uh, internal revenue. So, which later became 
the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, which we all hate. But that's what this was originally. I that's think what people it was that all. even work at the IRS hate the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just fair. <laughs> so the uh, so yeah, this was this was all under under them. This was all under the Treasury Department. So. Um, we had well, what it's enforced by now is the ATF. At the time, the ATF wasn't really wasn't what we think of as the ATF. Didn't really exist in its enforcement capabilities. No, no, not well, not as far as it comes to firearms. So originally, uh, the ATF uh, we talked about how it was the the revenue laboratory. Right. Um, during the um, prohibition era, it became the Bureau of Prohibition. And the Bureau of Prohibition was had had a lot of problems because first of all they were they were, they were grossly short staffed. They did not have enough agents to actually enforce the prohibition laws. And I think a lot of that was by design. A lot of the politicians didn't want them to be taking away their alcohol and taking away their uh, their opportunities to to be. To wheel and deal and get influenced. Well, not just influenced. Well, to be influenced, right? Yeah. Um, but to, to be bribed, to, to make their cut of all of that uh, speakeasy money, all that bootleg money. So, yeah, but they, they, were, they were grossly understaffed. I want to say there was something like 5,000 agents nationwide for the Bureau of Prohibition. And what you had there was you had the people who were a lot more casual about it. They treated it as just a job. Some of them even saw it as an, uh, as a learning opportunity so that they themselves could go into uh, bootlegging <laughs> and running speakeasies. Uh, a lot of them wound up being on the take. I think it was something like one in 12 were actually prosecuted for, um, for corruption during the time. One in 12. Maybe that's where the 12 round limit came. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were trying to think of it earlier. Maybe. I mean, no. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah. that's, and one Let's, in 12 of us are going to be corrupt. We so could try to no find, more than 12 rounds. Cause we'll, <laughs> we'll try to find every, uh, every obscure opportunity. Absolutely. To find, to find I will draw sort of connections. I will always draw connections needlessly. <laughs> so anyway, so they had, uh, but you had those and then you had the zealots. So the people who just didn't care that much and the people who were were on a mission from God to prevent people from drinking. And I would say in a lot of ways they were worse than the people who didn't care and who were on the take because because they're the Ron Swansons of the uh, ATF. The ones on the take or the No, no, no. I'm talking about the ones that didn't want to really go. Yeah, I guess the ones on the take are kind of the Ron Swansons, right? Like they're, little, they're kind yeah. of like uh, yeah, okay, so maybe you kick back some money towards me and I'm wasting the government's money. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> but the it wasn't just from that standpoint. The the ones who were zealots, they did some terrible things. So, I mean, we, we've all seen um, the movie with Kevin Costner um, about the Chicago, the Chicago way. What's gosh, I'm, I'm forgetting I, I know what movie. you're talking about. I've seen it um, before. Oh, gosh. I might look it up while me. you're talking. Um, I want to say Goodfellas, and that's not the movie. No, that's it's not, not it Goodfellas. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think you're talking about the Untouchables. The Untouchables. Okay. Gosh, dang it! I feel so embarrassed. Which is now. such a dang good movie. I it don't is, know how uh, how we missed that well, one quickly. It, it is a good movie, but it's at the same time like it's it's fun to watch, but at the same time, they were not good guys. No, no. I think when you get back to like the root of what was happening, there's some, some. I think anyone nowadays would say that's pretty evil. Yeah, and and so I mean the the way that they were the way that they were doing things, the way that they were enforcing the laws, but. Even just beyond that, that violence and basically using the, the gang tactics against the gangs, there were also the Bureau of Prohibition 
would confiscate and those alcohol shipments that they would they would get a hold of they would confiscate and then they would add wood alcohol to it and then they would put it back into the supply and wood alcohol is toxic to human beings so you had people that were getting violently sick or even dying and because of these actions that the government was poisoning their own people because they were people were doing things that the government didn't want them to do incredibly immoral actions there absolutely taken by the government Anyway, after Prohibition ended, the Bureau of Prohibition now again started doing regulation. They were collecting taxes on alcohol and tobacco. And it wasn't until 1968, with the Gun Control Act of 1968, that they started doing firearms as well and became the ATF as as we know them. The Gun Control Act of 1968 did a lot of things. I'm not going to touch on on anywhere near all of it. Essentially, I'm only going to talk about the ways that it expanded the NFA was that the Gun Control Act of 1968 corrected a lot of the um, a lot of the challenges that had been made towards about registration and about the the passing on of the tax stamps that had been challenged from the original NFA. But then it also added a couple of things. It added explosives and destructive devices. So what you were talking about there about handguns and or not, about hand grenades and things. Now all of a sudden hand grenades and mortars and all of those explosives were added, not just to the NFA as being res- registering them, they were outright banned. So this was the first time that they they just dropped all pretense and said, no, we're not trying to subvert the the Second Amendment. Now we're just we're not, openly we're not trying to just it. tax it and make it difficult. Right. We're, we're not trying to, to dance around it. We are openly violating the Second Amendment by saying you can't have these things. You can't have these arms. So and they they also banned um, any weapon that has a caliber over 50. So half an inch point five zero. Uh, so cannons, artillery, that kind of stuff. They were they were banning that. No 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 more dancing around. We're we're just we're just being. We're going to set restrictions and we're going to enforce them. Yes. And, and here's the thing: a lot of times people don't understand that, like this wasn't a law that was the, there wasn't legislatures that were you know voted on and put there by the people to represent them and create these additional changes to the law. And these further definitions that the ATF is giving out, this is this is a body of people who are government employees that decide this is how we're going to we are going to say these are no longer allowed. Not with the Gun Control Act. The Gun Control no, Act. That's what I'm saying. Actually, not with the Gun Control Act. The Gun Control but. Act was actually passed by Congress, mm-hmm. um, and that put the ATF in charge of a lot of things. And then from then that point on, the ATF was a regulating body, and that's they can I mean. make all yeah. of their 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 rulings and their calls and their regulations. And one of the problems that I see with this congressional input is like when me and you were sitting here talking about red, we, we immediately see that as a, as a potential violation of the constitution. Right. Yes. And so what happens is there's no challenge to this. There's not much that you can do until somebody is charged with the crime and then takes it to a high court. Yes. I Means they have to sit behind bars. They have to bond themselves. They have to pay for an attorney and they have to come up with the means to go and fight the federal government all the way up to the Supreme Court in order to get a decision either way, they still, it's not 100% sure whether or not like, oh, you know, two years ago I was fine, this year I'm I'm, I'm a felon. And that's a long process. It is, it's, it's not overnight. <laughs> no, you, you've gotta go through lower courts and mm-hmm. go get the rulings in the lower courts. Well, first you have to be convicted guilty. 
That's number one. You can't even get to, a, to an appeals court like the like the United States Supreme Court until you've been found guilty. Yeah. So you got to be found guilty and convicted of a crime first, and then you have to go through your through the first tier, which is your state, you know, Supreme Court. And there have been cases where the where regulating bodies like the ATF have been have been struck down in lower courts without having to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. But yes, the majority of the times they'll, they'll just go with it. Right. So, um, but then like I said, the, the, the gun control act of 1968 did a lot of things that were very onerous to, to gun owners, uh, to where in 1986 they packed, they passed the, uh, gun owners protection act. And so this was supposed to be a thing that took away a lot of those, made it a lot easier for people to have guns and to be compliant with, within the law. Uh, and as a way to placate the gun control crowd, they added the Brady amendment, which banned the, uh, sale of post 1986 uh, automatic weapons. So up until that point, you could get an automatic weapon. Anybody could get an automatic weapon uh, as long as you paid the tax stamp. So all the way from the sub, the Thompson submachine gun, the Browning automatic rifle, the Maxim uh, and the Lewis machine guns, all the way up till. I mean, you, you know, move the, through the 60s and 70s where you got the stuff like the, was it the M60, which is the, became like the, the squad assault rifle was yeah. used throughout Vietnam. Yeah. You know, so you have like a lot of these things that you could still technically get access to. Exactly. Uh, fully automatic uh, M16s. You know, we, we had mini guns, all kinds of things that were up, up to that point that you could, you could go and you could purchase. You just had to pay the tax stamp at this and, point. And were those being used widely in crime? No. Okay. I, I, I knew they weren't, but I like to ask these questions. <laughs> um, there was, there was a little bit of a concern around Uzis at the time. Yeah. Um, but even like the secure, the secret service around Reagan, like when Reagan was shot, you they could pull their Uzis out yeah, and cover them up. And, right. So you can actually see like, you can see photos and stuff of the secret service pulling out their Uzis to defend Reagan. And so again, the, the, the submachine gun, well, no, just the, 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 yeah, there was a submachine gun, but again, the, the higher political power being able to have the defenses that you as the normal everyday person can't have. Right. Um, but after that, and now a lot of the things that people think about with, uh, with machine guns, you can still purchase a pre 1986 machine gun with the same deal, just the $200 tax stamp. Now, of course, by this point, those have changed hands so many times. And you've got people like, if I had to pay $200 tax stamp on this and I'm going to sell it to you, well, I'm going to sell it to you for, for hire to recoup my loss on that $200 tax stamp. And the fact that this is now ultra rare. Yes, it's very rare. There's, there's a limited amount of them that people can have and the demand is just going to continue to go up that's going to drive up the price. So it's very expensive to buy a fully automatic weapon now. Now there's uh, one of the things that was added in with the uh, original NFA that I didn't talk about were licensing fees for sale for sales and manufacturers. So importers and uh, your everyday gun shops, pawn shops, firearm manufacturers all now had to pay licensing fees. Mm -hmm. So, those are still around and those have been expanded throughout other uh, gun control uh, legislation. Now, I'm not going to go fully into there that that's a whole podcast on its own to talk about the different classes of NFA licenses, but you can get a special NFA license called an SOT that allows you to have even fire automatic firearms that are made after 1986. But that's when you have all of those restrictions that are put in, all those things where the ATF can come in and check on you. Now they can only do it once a year, 
unless they're you are suspected of having committing some sort of crime and they have to have some sort of evidence in order to do multiple uh, searches. More do they or do they just have suspicion? They have to have, in legal terms, there's a major difference between probable cause suspicion. and reasonable suspicion. So probable cause says, I have a, fact, a set of facts and circumstances that would leave a, lead a person of reasonable prudence and caution to believe that a crime has been committed and that that person has committed that crime. That's that's the level of probable cause is. Reasonable suspicion is you have facts and circumstances that lead you to believe that there could have been a crime committed, period. Like, like Not that there was, but that there could have been. So I, I don't remember offhand... I'd have to look at the legislation again, but I think I think it falls under probable cause, not reasonable suspicion. But I'm again, I'm not 100 percent sure, but that that allows you to there. There are a lot more restrictions and a lot more um, responsibilities placed on you. Or if you have that kind of a license to have those those kind of weapons and even still, you're not supposed to have explosives in that role. Unless you're the government, because there's always exceptions, even in the NFA, were placed for the government and police officers, because the government's special. They're more special than you. They can have the things that you're not allowed to have because you're a peon. <laughs> but, um, so I mean, that's not elitism, right? Right. No. Well, and so essentially that's the state of the NFA as it is today. Um, and we talked a little bit about um, the ATF and some of the horror that is them. There's so much more that we could talk about, but we're not going to do it on this podcast. A couple of things I do want to touch on before we wrap up uh, is that the the entire purpose, the entire ability that they were able to pass this was saying that the government has the right to regulate um, interstate commerce and to generate revenue. And that was the way that they, they were able to get this all passed. Like I said before, even the attorney general of the time, uh, that was uh, FDR's attorney general, was saying that it would be unconstitutional to ban this stuff outright. But when we're talking about interstate commerce, well, what about if the the weapon or the suppressor or anything was all manufactured and stays within a single state? Right. Which there have been some some laws passed recently. There was a law passed in Montana. There was a law passed in Kansas. Um, Missouri is trying to pass a law right now. All of those that state that the government doesn't have the power to to regulate to regulate or within the borders of that state to regulate these firearms. It's a state issue, not a federal issue. Right. And so uh, there was actually a case that was brought up because Kansas passed that law. There was a gentleman who started manufacturing suppressors in Kansas to sell them in Kansas, to sell them in Kansas. And there were a couple of guys that bought them and did a YouTube review. And then the ATF came after him. And unfortunately the uh, attorney general of Kansas at the time was not pro gun, not pro second amendment. And he failed to uphold the law and failed to challenge the ATF in upholding Kansas state law against them. And so allowed these guys to, uh, to be prosecuted and convicted, uh, super messed up. Um, not going to go any more into it than that, but the, there was, uh, essentially there was a case back in 1942, which is what the, the government uses to support their regulation, even within the borders of a state. And, Essentially, this case, it was uh, Wickard versus Filburn, and I'm not going to go really into it outside of saying that it was actually a case against um, farm subsidies. I'm saying it sounds like it's using names. It's not using um, entities like uh, it's it's not the state versus this individual. So was this like two people having a civil issue? 
All right. So Wickard was actually the, the secretary of agriculture at the time. Oh, okay. And so, uh, so that's so, why I didn't have like the, you know, United States right. versus whatever. Right. Okay. So, uh, anyway, um, so not, not going to go fully into that. It was to do with, with, uh, with farm regulations, but it well, had to do with interstate commerce and mostly, well, it didn't. So, okay. I'll, I'll say, I'll say this much, uh, essentially Filburn grew more wheat than he was allowed to by the, the Department of Agriculture regulations, and he was saying that he shouldn't be penalized for that because all of the extra wheat that he's that he was growing, he's personally using. So that's his own personal use, and the rest of the stuff was what he was using to sell. And the government has no right to regulate what he makes for himself, and if it's not going into interstate commerce. Unfortunately, the uh, the ruling on that basically stated that uh, if it could possibly have a detrimental effect on interstate commerce, the government has the ability to regulate it. So they're basically saying because he may be able to take that to a local market, that that's where they get to step in. Even though he's not crossing state lines, it's not actually interstate commerce. It's not actually federally regulated. The it, fact that it could impact the market, period. It, yeah, it could int- impact the market. It could impact the sale of wheat across state lines because somebody within that state might not purchase as much or might not sell as much. and so Or that, drives prices down in his local area because he's got some he can you know sell off to the local you know bakery. Right. And essentially, he's because he's using that, then he's not uh, the stuff that he's growing in excess is more. Okay. Because th- otherwise he would be consuming what he's already consuming. And then that small amount beyond that is what he's selling. Now he's selling the full allotted amount that he can sell and he's consuming all this extra. So saying that there's now more wheat in the market beyond what they intended because there's a detrimental effect on, or because there's an effect on interstate commerce that they still have the ability to regulate it. I think that's complete BS. I think that is a violation of the Commerce Clause. Uh, and there are a lot of people that agree with me. But essentially... Well, I'll tell you who doesn't agree with you is nine justices who gave it a unanimous decision. <laughs> like, I, I think the principle... Like, you're trying to hit the morality of what this, what these clauses are supposed to be about. Not the morality, the spirit. The spirit of the mean, law yeah. versus the letter of the law. Exactly. And so I, I think a lot of times it comes down to definition when it comes to legality, Right. And that's that's where the NFA gets really messy is because there was a lot of unintended consequences with the NFA. Well, the Supreme Court upheld Jim Crow. The Supreme Court has, True. has made a lot really of really bad really decisions. messed up decisions. Agreed. And so I'm, I'm appealing to the saying the Supreme Court is uh, made the right decision there because they they had a unanimous agreement. That's an appeal to authority fallacy. Like that that doesn't necessi- that doesn't mean that they were right. right. It just means that that's what they ruled. So uh, another Supreme Court case that was brought up against uh, the NFA. So anyway, that, that that's what says that they um, they can regulate it if it's yeah, in state, even with, if it's within state. So I can't personally go and manufacture my own suppressor, right? And and use and my own because you could impact the market rifle. by owning your own instead of buying one. Assume so, like that's, supposedly. Yeah, that's a head scratcher. Yeah, it's it's really messed up. Um, so then there was another case that, again. I. <laughs> the Supreme Court messed up. And this was uh, the United States versus Miller. And this was actually a case this guy brought up that uh, he should be able to have a short barreled shotgun, that that that's clearly defended under the Second Amendment, that you know, the right to keep and bear arms, arms meaning all weapons of offense or armor of defense, that there shouldn't be a restriction on that. Well, unfortunately, the uh, Supreme Court 
said, uh, I'll read the exact ruling here. It said, in the absence of any evidence to show that the possession or use of a shotgun having a barrel of less than 18 inches in length at this time has some reasonable relationship to the uh, preservation or efficacy of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. Certainly is not within judicial notice that this weapon is any part of the ordinary military equipment or that its use could contribute to the common defense. So here's what's really messed up to me. They clearly said in that that it is not within a part of ordinary military equipment or that could be you could, uh, could contribute to the common defense. Short-barreled shotguns weren't a common military object at the time. They are now mostly used for breaching, but yeah, you can military uh, military does use short-barreled shotguns now. But they were only ruling on the short-barreled shotgun. Essentially, that ruling says that fully automatic weapons should be covered because they were commonly implemented. They were common use. And I was going to say, is that the barometer fight. that we're going to use for all court cases from that point on? Is that what does the military have and that's what the people should only be able to have? Because I don't think that's what they intended, but that sounds like the direction they were going with that. Well, that's... That, that's almost exactly what Alexander Hamilton said in Federalist 29, right. saying that the, there should be no force uh, superior to the, as long as there is no uh, standing military superior to the civilian population in weapons and in, in use of arms. Right. So, yeah, that's ex- exactly what he was talking about in his defense of the Second Amendment, that we should be able to have anything that the military has. And this ruling is clearly stating that, that, no, it's really because, that it's only banned because it's not ordinary military equipment. But they didn't. They didn't try to to look at. They didn't apply that to the whole of the NFA. Only to this one object that they were bringing up in the specific case, which is completely intellectually disingenuous. Well, you know what's so weird about this is this is actually a Fourth Amendment case, and this is something I've dealt with with law enforcement. And and so I was like, I, I recognize the name. That's so, so I looked it up really quick. Let me just. I'm going to read this synopsis because it's like five sentences, and then the actual question that was before the court was a fourth amendment question. It wasn't even a second amendment. So what's funny is how the Supreme court works is a lot of times they derive future decisions based off of these remarks that are made that are subsequent to the actual question at hand. It's like opining over something. And then they're, they're basically saying from now on, we're going to treat everything like this. Okay. Well, and it's just playing the game of telephone. It's not it looking is. at the original documentation <laughs> yeah. or the original uh, intent of the constitution. They're just saying, what did people do before us? Well, you know, cause I used to teach a fourth amendment class to high school students to try to let them know that like you're about to be an adult and you're about to be able to own personal property and when you're going around town and you're in your car what are the rights that protect your personal property versus the rights that you know basically like you don't have a right in this particular situation so I want to be very clear about what the fourth amendment was and we had a great class on it so this particular case the man's name was Mitch Miller he was charged with carrying alcohol distilling equipment and whiskey which was uh, liquor tax had not been paid on Okay, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the ATF issued a subpoena to two of Miller's banks, the Citizens and Southern's National Bank of Warner Robbins and the Bank of Byron requesting records of his accounts. So, again, this is the, the case is more based off of the actual Fourth Amendment, like his his ability to have some privacy in his his uh, records. The banks complied with the subpoenas and the evidence was issued during Miller's trial in the uh, district court, uh, Middle District of Georgia. Miller was convicted and appealed his conviction, alleging that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. United States Supreme Court appeals um, for the Fifth Circuit ruled in his favor. So the real question that was actually before the court was, were his bank records illegally seized and in violation of the Fourth Amendment? 
And so basically, yeah, that's the <laughs> number. Uh, it, it, it was a six, three opinion court reversed the fifth circuit and held that Miller had no right to privacy in his bank records because it was the state. It was the United States that was saying, Hey, we want to take this to the higher court. Cause we think we're still right. Even though the Fifth Circuit already overturned and said, no, he's innocent. Yeah. And they said that's happened multiple times. Yeah. It's just it's kind of scary when it's like, I mean, this is this made the basis of being able to subpoena and seize documents prior to having a criminal case in front of the court. Yeah. And it's it's where it gets a little bit messy. It's like um, (laughs) you basically have to give a probable cause statement to a court in order to get them to give you a warrant. But you're not going to these agencies with a warrant. You're going to them with a subpoena for records and saying that you're going to take it in front of a grand jury to be heard. And because of that, well, then now it still falls under the purview of being, you know, admissible in court. So it just is a weird, anyway, I'm going to jump off of it, but I just wanted to mention that it really was a Fourth Amendment issue and it had been overturned by a circuit court and then the Supreme Court heard it and then overruled in, in favor of the state saying, yeah, they absolutely going to dig through your financial records and time they want to for potential criminal purposes well but then yeah like and then they, and then they turn into ruling over atf and the use of firearms nfa or sorry specifically enforcement actions of the atf oh, yeah related to the nfa right and the enforcement of those yeah so and that's that i i find that just that ruling incredibly frustrating well it is because it got overturned and then right back to the Supreme well, Court. well no not not just not just the over overturn is that the fact that they're just, they purely based that off of one object covered under the NFA and didn't apply that same argument to anything else. Right. Because the NFA covers everything, you know, because if it's not on the list of prohibited, then it's on, then it's acceptable. Right. And so if you're starting to make the delineation, you can't go into an armory in a modern day military and find an AR-15. No, you can't. They they don't exist. That military doesn't buy AR-15s like we as civilians buy. No. So, you know, it's like. (laughs) And I want to briefly say something regarding what we talked about last time Um, when I was talking about uh, in the CMP matches and the Navy marksmanship matches yeah. that we're using M16 variants. I know that there are going to be some people out there that saying you aren't using M16s, you're using AR15s. Yes, technically we are using AR15s, but it is called the service rifle match. Yes. And the service rifle is not an AR15. It is an M16. Right. Now granted there's no reason for fully automatic fire, which is the difference between the M16 and the AR15 in in those matches. There's there's no reason for that. So yes, we're all using AR15s, and a lot of us are using our personal rifles, not the service rifles. But that's why I said M16 variants. Yeah, which is understandable because the AR15 is a variant of an M16, like the military would have, but it's not capable of doing the same things. You can't hold the trigger down and it just keeps firing. It's, right. It's just that's the main difference, which sounds like it's minor. Like some people say, well, so the bullet's just as destructive and you can just keep pulling the trigger really fast. It's like there's a significant difference in battle between suppressive fire and aimed fire, right? Yeah. And aimed fire is one trigger pull for one shot. You're trying to take it a specific target. And if you need to reacquire, you got to reacquire the target and reacquire the trigger squeeze. It's a process. That you're, it's, it's more involved. It's not just holding a trigger down and suppressing somebody so that you can make a flanking maneuver and deal with them. There's a tactical reason there's a difference between what we carry as civilians versus what the military wants to have available as an option. Well, and that's that's the functional difference between having, you know, your your regular service infantry rifle and the squad automatic rifle. The, the, There's the a specific position for the guy that's going to lay down the heavy fire. Right. The, that heavy fire that 
that is coming from the machine gun, yes, that is used for an artillery purpose. That is used to provide cover. That is used to actually attack. Like there, there is a very specific purpose there. Having automatic fire on the service rifle predominantly that's that's used for cover fire that's used to keep people's heads down while you're keep the enemy's heads down mm-hmm. while your guys are moving and it's and it's for momentary use unlike the squad rifle which is to hey i'm, I'm laying the base of fire while the maneuver is happening well and there's a for reason extended periods of time there's a reason why the squad rifle has is belt fed mm-hmm. and has this long belt of ammunition and interchangeable barrels <laughs> and interchangeable barrels <laughs> you're gonna melt off potentially as opposed to what your infantry weapon has which is a 30 rock 30 round box magazine mm-hmm. and you're not interchangeable barrel. No, no because you're not supposed to sustain that fire. Right. And that is for momentary use. And that is that, that automatic fire is, has a very specific purpose and it's not mowing down tons of people. Yeah. And the, and the other thing here that I think is, this has always been a contention in my head is I can't understand. There's these arguments about like, we've got to ban assault rifles, right? And this showed up in, in the 1990s with the assault rifle ban. It never assault made weapons, assault ban. weapons ban, sorry, not assault rifle, assault weapons ban. Uh, but with that assault weapons ban, it just, to me, I'm, I'm trying to still understand what the difference is between like, I'll give you an example. You have a base and these soldiers are on a base in a hostile environment. Let's say Iraq, 2000 five okay they're on base and they're in a defensive position in a foxhole or you know they've, they've got barricades around them and they're they're manning a station and they start taking indirect fire and then they start taking direct fire from a squad moving on them from an enemy right yeah is that no longer an assaultive weapon now because it's being used strictly for defensive purposes right or is it always an assault rifle or like, you know, how, how people are seeing that it's, it, to me, it's very difficult to understand. I think because assault is, is a, it's a verb It's talking about, it's describing the action that's occurring. It's not an actual type of firearm. Well, and so here, here's where, where it all comes from, essentially from my understanding. So the, the very first assault rifle, and also the difference between an assault, an assault rifle is actually a, a defined term. Assault weapon really varies upon. Is it a the, military def- definition yes. that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So an assault weapon is really, a, it's a legal term used for, for fear tactics. But an assault rifle is an intermediate caliber rifle that has select fire capabilities. So select fire, meaning I can have this rifle. Multiple on, modes of fire. Right. So I can have this rifle firing single shots only in a semi-automatic fire or I can have it I can switch it from that to burst fire or fully automatic fire okay. so the uh, burst fire meaning that one pull of the trigger fires like three rounds instead of just one and fully automatic meaning as long as I'm holding the trigger down that rifle is going to keep firing or weapon because it doesn't have to necessarily be a rifle but that that is what a an uh an assault rifle is and the very first one which is why i'm kind of arguing this point is like because there's a clearly defined assault rifle right but there's not a clearly defined assault weapon and and the reason for that that uh term actually comes from the very first one the sturmgewehr 44 which was a weapon that was developed by nazi germany towards the end of the war and predominantly only used on the uh the eastern front but the sturmgewehr actually translates to assault rifle so it was assault rifle 44. So that's where that that comes from. Right now, assault weapon is they're they're using that as a way to describe a, a weapon that looks like it's military based, and 
because it doesn't fall into the category of an assault rifle. An AR-15 isn't an assault rifle because it doesn't have that select, select fire. fire capabilities. Uh, you know, it's an AK-47 on the civilian market isn't an assault rifle. It doesn't have the select fire capabilities. So they want to call it an assault weapon because it looks like an assault rifle. And one of these days, we'll, we'll go into some of the uh, the specifics, uh, a lot of the, the categories of what makes up an assault rifle. Uh, I've got... Uh, limitations I'm, to <laughs> yeah well i'm so all right well i'll do i'll do uh, an abbreviated version so some of the things that they've got on there that makes up an assault rifle like one some of the characteristics defining characteristics well they talk about a pistol grip well if you look at the evolution of firearms some of the very first firearms like the arquebus it had almost a completely straight grip that went along from the barrel down to the stock was almost a completely straight grip as we see firearms develop, that grip curves down more and more. You look at like the Harper's Ferry um, uh, flintlocks. You know, there's a little bit more of a curve there. You look at um, like the uh, Colt Army revolvers. There's more of a curve there. Uh, as you look into the early uh, 1900s and you get the development of the 1903 and the 1911, there's a lot more of a curve. It now has like an 18 degree angle. Uh, and so you see that because it's it, it works better the ergonomics are better the way that the human body is designed you're able to handle the recoil better with yeah because what you're trying to do is essentially trying to put the butt of the rifle into the blade of your shoulder and then you're trying to you know put your cheek against it so you can get a clear side of the picture the sight picture of the sights and then that way you can be effective and actually aim your shots instead of just shooting from the hip well and so what the so we see like the Sturm Gewehr 44 and even and some other rifles, the, um, the M1 carbine, which was a paratroopers jump rifle, which a variant of the M1 Garand that the regular infantry was using in World War II uh, and in Korea. The M1 carbine had a, a wire stock that folded out and it had a pistol grip. And one of the things was that the, the pistol grip allows you to not only hold the rifle, but to get more leverage to pull it back into your shoulder so you have a better point of support to fire and control that weapon. More accurate fire. Exactly. And you can look, even looking at more modern precision rifles, a lot of them have pistol grips. Mm -hmm. Even like looking at uh, like the uh, Olympic air rifle team, those are not firearms at all they're air rifles <laughs> and a lot of them like while it does it's not a traditional pistol grip because the stock does come from it i said one of the ones that we have bottom. like your thumb go through the stock yeah thumb hole stocks right. but even some of these where the stock comes like where the the grip comes out from after the uh, the action of the rifle and drops straight down at almost a 90 degree or sometimes at a 90 degree angle mm -hmm. and then goes back uh, and into this becomes the stock. You're seeing a lot more of those in precision rifle because you're able to pull that stock in. You're able to get that, that leverage of just pulling your arm back to pull that stock into your shoulder. And you've got a more stable uh, uh, grip and a lot more, and a more stable. So there's nothing about platform. a pistol grip that makes it more assaultive than not having a, no, it makes it grip. more, it makes it more accurate. makes you able to, <laughs> to hold it, but it doesn't better. make you necessarily more effective. Only more effective in the fact that you're more accurate. And the thing is, is that you want an accurate gun for yeah. anything that you're using a gun for. You, you want, want an accurate. You don't gun. want indiscriminate fire. You want controlled. <laughs> no, and that's that's a big thing. Is that I don't if if I'm in a home defense situation, if I'm in um, 
self-defense situation out anywhere. Anytime that I have to use my, my firearm, if I'm hunting, I want that round to go where I want it to go. I don't want it to go somewhere off, off be other than what I'm shooting at. Mm-hmm. There could be collateral damage. There could be somebody that's beyond that, that the, the, the round hits. There could be, you know, just property or something that I could damage with that round. I don't want that to happen. I want my, n- nobody should be against firearms being accurate. Right. That, that's there's kind of the point no I was trying to make is like, it. there's nothing logically that says being more accurate is more dangerous. Right. In fact, I think it's the opposite. It's kind of like, I would completely agree. It's, it's kind of like when I talk to people about like carrying a knife, I'm like, do yourself a favor by a quality knife, because even if you use it for utility purposes, you use it to pry cans open and all that, you want something that's going to last number one, but number two, keep it as sharp as you possibly can. And there's actually a safety reason for it. If you cut yourself with it, it's really easy to seal that cut up and to, and, and to heal and not have a huge scar. Like, you know, again, accuracy or like the ability to be like, there's nothing that makes it more dangerous than, than, you know, well, even with the knife thing, there's, there's another reason behind keeping it sharp. And that's because you have to put less force behind it in order to cut something. Right. A lot of times people are more prone to cut themselves with dull knives than, than with sharp knives. Absolutely. Because they're trying to put so much pressure behind the thing that they're cutting because it's not sharp enough to actually cut it. And Lacks then control. They, yeah, they lack control and they've, they you wind up forcing who, the knife beyond where it's supposed, where they intended it to be mm-hmm. and cut themselves or damage something. Oh, there, there's some great places you can go and, and watch people doing historic things like, you know, wood carvings and stuff like that. What, they're using the sharpest dang knives you ever seen in your life because they're trying to be accurate, number one. But number two is like you said, it's the control and the safety factor of not cutting yourself up, but you go the, and buy a good wood chisel. Yeah. That thing's like a freaking razor. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but, and that's kind of the point of like it, it, to me, there's a parallel there with firearms, which is you want the most accurate firearm you can. Like it, when I used to talk to people about, they'd talk to me about caliber and, Oh, what caliber is better for, for shooting deer? What caliber is better if you get in a, you know, self-defense situation? I'm like, it doesn't matter. Well, what do you mean it doesn't matter? The best shot is the placement. The best caliber is the one that you can shoot. Exactly. So let me ask you, would you rather be shot, you know, give you an example. Would you rather be shot in the head with a 22 between the eyes or a 308 between the eyes? Uh, None. None, please, because that's good shot placement that can kill me. I'd prefer not to do that. I'd much prefer taking a 22, like, you know, like miss me completely. Be, please be in a, a horrible shot and not hit me with it, okay? <laughs> or a 308, please hit me in the arm and not the chest and not the head. You know, like, you know, please don't go train. Well, I'd rather take a 45 <laughs> to the leg than a 22 to the eye. Absolutely. <laughs> so, again, it's not about caliber or how effective the weapon itself can be. It's about the person that's behind it. It's about the the training that you receive. It's a, it has very little to do with the actual tool, and it has to do with the purpose. It has to do with the intent. So that, to me, comes back to the assault weapons ban, and it comes back to the NFA. And it's at the heart of these issues is like, well, oh, we want to control this really dangerous thing in society, which I completely I understand that that people would like that security blanket. They would really like to think that there is some meaningful change that occurs by limiting those items for people. Well, that's all it really is. It's a security blanket. What right. is your, your blanket is protecting you for being cold, but that's about it. It doesn't actually protect you. Exactly. And all this is a security theater. It makes people think that they're safe, but they're not really safe. In some, in a lot of these cases, they're actually in more danger because of like, because of these laws. Like we talked about, uh, 
when we had Grizzly on, I talked briefly about gun-free zones and how something like 94 or 96% of uh, mass shootings that have happened since 1950 have happened in gun-free zones. And that's because people are easy targets and they think they're safe. They think that, Hey, this is a gun-free zone. Nobody's going to have a gun in it, here. It really doesn't make them feel good. Like there's a lot of people I know personally today, if you were to ask them, would you prefer that your community, like if you say you live in a gated community, would you prefer that community not have firearms or have firearms? It almost I mean, almost everyone I know uh, that are that are opposing the Second Amendment, if you will, would be like, oh, I'd much rather live in a, in a gun free area. I'd much rather live in an area where I know my neighbor is not going to pull a gun out and go crazy. Well, that's not your biggest threat. Your biggest threat is not your neighbor that owns a gun because there's 400 million guns owned by 100 million people in the United States. If guns were the problem. And if it was people owning guns was the problem, there, there wouldn't be a population in the United States. It'd be so dangerous. We'd, we'd call it Mexico. <laughs> okay. Or Brazil. Or Brazil, yeah. But, you know, like I'm being facetious, but at the same time, I'm saying, like, there, there's a disconnect between feeling safe and being safe. Being safe is having options. Being safe is being able to protect yourself from a threat. Being safe is thinking everyone has a gun around you. And not because you're scared, but because I need to be alert. I need to be understanding that something could happen. I just was reading a, a case of a local, you know, shooting that happened and it was a robbery gone bad. Somebody just, you know, going home, walking up to their front door. Somebody tries to rob them. It goes south. The person shoots and kills them. It's like, you know, I'm not going to debate whether or not a firearm could have helped that person in that situation. And, but I'm also not going to sit there and say that, well, if, if, if I didn't personally own firearms, that would save that situation from happening. It's that's, they're completely different things. They're, they don't relate. Like there's no, that, that, that person's not going to feel any more safe. Their family members that survived that are not going to feel any more safe. Whether I personally, you know, whether Abrams owns a firearm or not, it's not going to make a difference in their daily lives. Well, and the thing is, is that if, if those laws actually did anything to prevent crime, then why don't we just make murder illegal? <laughs> we, we, we did. We made it murder. We made murder illegal still before murder. everything else. Well, we just we haven't made it illegal enough. Oh, okay. <laughs> we need better enforcement of murder. Better, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, when a murder happens, we need to like not let it happen. So we need to go into like what is that Minority Report? <laughs> Thank you. I was like, I was like, what was that movie with freaking Tom Cruise? Minority Report. But you know, just it, it, I, I understand that there is a reason that people have that when they're opposing, well, there's a lot of people I would say, think that, that the National Firearms Act was not enough. And that's why we kept getting iterations, like you said, in the 1960s, 1980s with Brady Act, 1994, you know, the, the assault weapons ban, the, the, you know, what was, what was the 94? It was the Crime Act, the yeah. 94, um, you know, where they're trying to really cut down on things. You had a lot of things that were happening culturally trying to shift like, hey, we've got to do something better than the NFA. And then you go and look at the stats and it just didn't ever, it didn't ever get there. There wasn't this huge hill of like rising crime. And then we realized, oh, if we just limit the, the ownership of assault weapons which are going to generically describe as something that looks scary and we're going to keep good people from owning that and that'll prevent others from owning it. It's like, okay, well, these criminals, most of the time when they're using them in a crime, aren't taking a firearm that they bought at the store under their name with an FBI background check. <laughs> they're getting something that's stolen or something they borrowed from somebody else. Yeah. You know, the ownership is, is completely irrelative to the fact that they're going to commit a crime with it. There was actually a, uh, a survey done of criminals that were... Um, that were in for violent crime with firearms, 
something like 56%. I'm almost positive. It was 56% of them said that they did not purchase their guns legally. Yeah. And and I think that there is FBI stats in the nineties that were going around and and talking about those issues, like the ownership of the firearm versus like if they could have legally qualified for a firearm and just, you know, were were using a firearm, but didn't legally obtain it. And all of it was just like, these are non-issues. When you look at the stats, they have no bearing on the outcome, you know, like, Oh, this person, I guess they probably could have bought a firearm and they went and committed a crime. And then you look at all the people that could own firearms that don't own firearms, you know, like it's the stats to me are almost irrelevant on those issues. But you know, I was, <laughs> well, you talking about the, uh, the 94 crime bill. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you get people that will, will tout, Oh, well, you know what? Firearm deaths went down after the passage of the 94 crime bill and after the ban of, of assault, right? Weapons. Crime went down at the same rate that it was going down before. That's correct. If you did something that actually that actually helped, you would expect to see at least a steeper decline than what was was happening before. But crime was already going down. Firearms crime was already going down. Mm-hmm. Murders were already going. Well, who down. who are the two big authors of the Crime Bill ninety four? Well, Diane Feinstein and Joe Biden. Okay, and one of them is president of the United States now, right? Unfortunately, well, <laughs> good for him, bad for us. But Biden back in 94, when he was talking about this and they were talking about these gun restrictions they wanted to put in place with the assault weapons ban. This is a quote from him. Nothing we're going to do is to, is going to fundamentally alter or eliminate the possibility of another mass shooting. He was aware of that at that time, that that assault weapons ban was not going to preclude somebody from killing a lot of people. And just a couple of years later, we had the Oklahoma City bombing. And then, you know, 2001, we get the World Trade Center. So like mass killings are going to happen in various ways. The most destructive ones usually aren't related to firearms. They're usually related to some you know, catastrophic event. Um, but then, you know, Feinstein went on and, and was trying to quote this uh, this Coper and Roth National Institute of Justice uh, survey that was done. And she she goes in um, she goes in and starts talking about the 6.7% decrease in crime relative to 1995's projected crime rates. And so she was saying, like, look how much good the assault weapons ban did, right? It really, boy, 6.7% is something to jump up and down about. Not necessarily. Like you were saying, like, there was already declines happening and there was simultaneous that crime bill with the assault weapons ban with a bunch of smaller, you know, like, I think around that time was when you had Chicago talking about trying to prohibit all firearm sales and, and ownership within the city limits. You know, so you had a lot of a lot of places that were taking these issues on. But in that same study that she was quoting this, you know, 6.7%, you know, downtick in gun murders, it goes on to, it goes on to say, however, with only one year, so they did the study with only one year of post-ban data. Number one, that's just not enough to really get details. But we cannot rule out the possibility that, the, that this uh, decrease reflects chance-to-year variation rather than the true effect of the ban. Meaning like, hey, the year-to-year variation is still within those parameters. So there's nothing that's like jumping out and saying like, oh, this is clearly the, the assault weapons ban. And then it further says, nor can we rule out the effects that the features of the 94 Crime Act or uh, any host of state and local initiatives that took place simultaneously had the same effect. Um, and then even further on, it says, using a variety of national and local data sources, we found no statistical evidence of post-ban decreases in either the number of victims per gun homicide incident or the number of gunshot wounds per victim or the proportion of gunshot victims with multiple wounds. Now, that one, the reason why I think those words are important is because they're trying to be clear 
that the data doesn't support that eliminating high capacity magazines is going to somehow limit the, the, the actual death or the actual cause of death. Like I would actually argue that it would probably have a detrimental effect. So there statistically more crimes are being committed with more people. So saying that the, the, whereas historically the per capita rate. No. So historically you would, uh, a lot of times crimes would be propagated by one person. So you have one guy coming up and sticking a gun in your face and saying, Hey, give me your wallet or breaking into your house and trying to steal your stuff. More often it's multiple people. Multiple people are breaking into your house at one time. Multiple people are coming up to you in a, in a dark alley or on a, a dark street and trying to steal stuff from you. Yeah, it puts the odds in their favor. Yes, it does put the odds in their favor. That means that and in a police interaction, I think that it's six missed shots to every one shot that hits. The FBI stats initially were saying that, yeah, there was essentially, it was all the way up to, well, there was a lot of incidents where they were getting like, 10 rounds and maybe only one would hit. And so the, the idea there saying that the, the police officers train not as much as they should by a long shot. More than John Q public. Typically I would say yes, more than, more than most people. There are, I would say that there are a lot of people in the firearm community that train a lot more often than most cops do. Um, we're, we're going to average it out and we're going to say that it's about the same. Sure. For, for average, averaging say. purposes. So if you've got, two people and you're probably going to miss six of those shots, then that means that you need at least 14 rounds in that gun to try to take out both people. And that's assuming that that one hit that you get on each person is enough to stop them or deter them, make them run away. Wait, so you're saying maybe that 1997 FBI study was the reason why they picked 12 in the NFA in 1934? Maybe they, maybe oh, they maybe had they time knew. travel. Maybe they knew. They're like, you know, we know that you're going to miss the majority of your shots and we only want you to be able to deal with one bad guy. But if we give you the ability to have more than 12 rounds, you might be able to take care of two bad guys. This is going to become a running thing. <laughs> it absolutely is. The number 12. <laughs> Anytime the number 12 comes up. Today is brought to you by the number 12. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> so, so yeah, so the idea is that I, I want to have as many rounds as possible because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. First of all, I've never been in that kind of a situation. I wasn't in combat. So even with as much as I've trained, I don't know exactly how I'm going to handle that situation. I have an idea because I've tried to do more stress-related training, not as much as I can, not as much as I, I could have, but I, I've done more stress-related training than the average person who just goes and fires in a static range. And I still don't know how I'm going, how I would respond if I were in a situation where I was fighting for my life. I right. don't know how my aim would would be impacted by that. Usually what happens, so this is something really interesting through the training that I went through, I started noticing trends and I could I could start to overcome some of my personal trends, but I noticed it with other officers and there's actually some stats to support this as well. But as you continue to fire your firearm, you get more accurate. So what happens is your first few rounds are maybe panic rounds. They're kind of like, I've got to get led at the problem and you just start pulling the trigger. 
And then you realize I'm not having effect. Once you once your brain can process that through the OODA loop that I'm not having effect on target, then you actually start seeking out that front sight. And so that's why all the training that they do in law enforcement is around get that front sight. The second you have that front sight, now you look at your target because where that's, I mean, it's point shooting. It's well, not necessarily super aimed, but it's point shooting. And because most of these fights are happening, most gunfights that actually occur are really close range. Well, a lot of IDPA shooters, um, like action shooters, guys going out and doing the, uh, um, like the three gun kind of courses and stuff. Um, a lot of those guys actually get to a point that through the amount of dry fire training that they do, that they have an idea, even without fully lining up the site. It's they just know the where muscle their gun memory. Is, they know where their gun is pointed based mm-hmm. off of where their hand is. It's kind of like um, some people, like you can throw a ball up in the air and you can catch it, even though you're not directly looking at where the ball you is. You projected its directly. trajectory. Exactly. You know where it's going to be and you know how to put your hand there, even though you're not deliberately looking at your hand and making sure that it's in that spot. You're aware enough because you have that repeated use. And yeah. so the, the same thing. Walking out firearm. of the police academy, that's how I felt because we had 120 hours or something of firearms training. And I swear to you, I could I could knock a, a dime 25 yards away, no problem, off of a stump. You know, like I knew exactly where the gun was going to go and that's from the draw. Less than two and a half seconds from the draw to me taking an aim shot down range along distance and I know I'm going to hit my target. And if it's even closer, there's less I have to even think about. We st- we, sh- we practice if you're in that three that three yard range, you're as you're drawing, you you can't your gun and you start shooting basically from the hip as you come to the full firing position, that isosceles position you know where you're locking both your arms out and shooting straight. So you get so used to the firearm that you can be super accurate without having to really think about it. So like you said, having the amount of rounds is a lot more effective sometimes than having and this is like when people do want to have the caliber argument with me I'm like that's why I would prefer to carry a 9mm why I mean a 45 is so much more knockdown power a 40 caliber that's is even better true, a 357 oh, oh all these things I'm like I can carry in a Smith & Wesson M&P 9mm that I was issued when I was a police officer it carried 17 rounds plus one in the chamber like Please, yes, I would take that any day over, you know, my counterparts who are running Glocks, you know, 45 caliber or even 40 caliber. And they're, you know, 12, 14 rounds, you know. Well, like, and in, in 2014, and I'll touch on this briefly, 2014, the FBI did a ballistics uh, examination. And essentially it was determining that the difference in wound cavity between modern hollow point defensive ammunition the difference in wound cavity between a nine millimeter, a 40 and a 45 was so minimal as to really not be a, a considerable factor. So when, if you're looking at all that and you're saying, okay, says the FBI that used to carry 10 millimeter. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, modern ammunition that, that right. changed from the 10 millimeter in the, in the 1980s. Yeah. So modern ammunition, there, there have been advancements in that. So if, if it's kind of a negligible difference in, in the difference in the, of the wound cavity, then why wouldn't you go towards the round that you can carry more of that has less recoil so you can get better follow-up controlled shots. safer shots yeah. exactly and costs less mm-hmm. because even the the good high-end nine millimeter defense round is less expensive than the medium end uh 45 defensive rounds. Yeah. Even some of the low end 45 defensive rounds. Well, and part of this is like when we're talking about the NFA and how this applies to the firearms tactics, because basically with this whole last five minutes, we've been talking about tactics of, of firearms, but it really is a crucial thing because as I'm carrying concealed, 
I've got to have as much options as possible because I'm you're not always able to carry a bunch of extra magazines and a flashlight and handcuffs and all these things. Even when I was a police officer, like when I'm off duty, I'm like, man, sometimes I wouldn't even carry a gun. You know, like most of the time I wasn't even carrying a gun off duty. But when I did, it was that peace of mind that like I got enough to stay in it for a little bit because I know how quickly those situations evolve through training that I know that just the initial burst of fire may not be enough to get out of the situation. Maybe I don't hit my target and maybe they're getting cover or concealment and I need to be able to gently suppress them while I get myself to a safer position. Having a few extra rounds to be able to safely suppress somebody is, is really critical in a gunfight. Well, even a, a lot of people are carrying smaller firearms now. They're carrying mm-hmm. subcompacts. Um, and a lot of times you've got like 10 rounds in those. So now there have been some advancements. There are some uh, advancements in magazines and advancements in firearms design where you're getting a lot more of like 15 round magazines and stuff in these smaller guns. Um, I'm talking about the uh, double stack. Well, I'm talking about the, uh, like the uh, SIG P365. Yeah. Um, Then you've got the, uh, I can't remember what the company is that makes the better magazine for the, uh, like the Glock 48 and the 43 X um, that you're able to put 15 rounds in instead of 10. Um, you've got the um, Springfield Hellcat. It's yeah. like that where you're, you're able to carry more rounds, but even then you've got, um, you might be in a situation where you need more rounds than that. And I started carrying a spare magazine after doing, um, I did a handgun course where we focused a lot on malfunctions. Mm-hmm. And one of the most common malfunctions that, you have is caused by the magazine and, typically. And there are, tip, there are a lot of malfunctions that are, that would require stripping a magazine, getting rid of the magazine, taking it out and clearing the malfunction, having a spare magazine on hand to be able to replace that in case you dropped that magazine, that magazine is no longer operational. Something happens and you've got that spare mag to be able to get back mm-hmm. in the fight. That that's a good thing to have. Yeah, and so uh, I mean, I started that's carrying. why police officers carry three mags. They got one in the gun, and they got two usually minimum that they carry as a backup. Is because if you do get in a shootout, you want to basically like think of it this way: like you want to gas your vehicle back up, right? Yeah. Like you don't want to get into another bad situation or let it continue to evolve without having everything possible. You don't want to be doing a reload in the middle of a shootout. So that's why you carry the extra mags. And so if you have a lull in the fight, you do an admin reload and make sure, okay, I'm gassed up. If it, if it gets worse, I'm, I've got full capacity. And so sometimes it's not even about how many rounds you're carrying. It's about being able to like top it off, carrying that extra mag. Well, even just uh, as a concealed carrier, like I'm the concealing the gun with a smaller magazine is a lot easier, Mm -hmm. but just concealing a longer magazine Super easy. Right. So I would carry with a, a 15 round magazine in my gun because that was able to be easier concealed. And then I'd have on my body a 21 round mag. Yeah. So if, if things if I get do ugly, have to reload, if it did get that bad, if, now I'm really in the fight. <laughs> yeah. If things get ugly, I've got even more rounds mm-hmm. to, to be able to try to, to stop that threat and to, to save myself, to save others. So it, and the thing is, you never know what situation you're going to get into. Yeah. You know, you may never get into a situation at all. And I pray That'd that be you the don't. Ideal. And I pray that I don't. And I pray that nobody listening to this ever does. But the fact of the matter is, you might. And you might be in a situation where you only have to fire one round. You might be in a situation where you never have to fire your gun. Just the mere presence of the gun scares off the person. But you might be in a situation where you have to fire every single round that you have. And if I'm in a situation where I, I, I don't know what situation I'm going to be in, I want to best prepare for the, the worst possible situation that I could be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to carry more rounds. 
I'm as many rounds as I can comfortably carry. I'm not going to, again, it, you have to be able to, to well, balance function and this, life. So we're talking about tactics and, and I want to turn this back into the NFA thing a little bit. Cause we're talking about round capacity, yeah. which is a big part of the NFA. There's another part of the no, NFA. It's not part of the NFA. It was the, the, the initial, when they the were initial to say 12 one, yeah. rounds, they yeah. were limited. And this came and back and trying this, to bring that back now. Right. Well, they tried to bring it back in 94 too. high capacity magazine restrictions, yeah. which you have still in California where you have to have less than 10 rounds. And you have in New York. And there, right. are, there are a lot of different municipalities and, right. and, and states that have those. Which is why, just to sum it up for everyone that's listening, that's why we wanted to cover that a little bit. But one of the other things that, that to me, uh, becomes critical about, like, it, it, uh, the NFA was trying to control and say, hey, these are really dangerous weapons. We want to get rid of these. Basically, they were kind of targeting fully automatic stuff was the primary purpose. They were trying to target stuff that was being overwhelming in crime that not, not overwhelming in the fact that it was overwhelmingly responsible for crime, mm-hmm. but that it was overwhelming the law enforcement officers. It was right. overwhelming the people that were trying to stop this crime. So let me ask you this red, because I know my answer. If you had the choice between select fire on your pistol and select fire on your rifle and leaving it the way that it is, which is one trigger pull, one shot, which would you choose? Oh, I would do select fire on a rifle way before I do select fire on a pistol. Would you ever use it on a pistol? <sighs> let me okay. let me put it this way: I'm in a tactical s- situation, I can I cannot think of a situation where I would. Uh, I cannot think of a situation where I would w- feel like that was warranted. From my personal experience and the training that I've had, I cannot think of a situation in which I would have fared better in the training with fully automatic fire, whether that be rifle or pistol. I don't think there is any of the trainings I've been to that I would have benefited from that. In fact, I would have been inhibited because round counts kind of a big deal to stay in the fight. And so like we would do simunitions training where we have basically it's a bullet, but the bullet is a paint marker. It's basically like a little piece of plastic and it's full of paint and it, and it freaking hurts when it hits you, but because well, it still uses powder. Exactly. It still uses smokeless powder. In yeah. Powder it's, it's, fire. it's flying paint at you instead of a rock. So thank goodness you're not going to die from it, but it's going to hurt. Um, but doing, doing those trainings, it became really apparent that like conservation of ammunition was a big deal. If you had fully automatic and just went the first time you saw someone and just squeeze that trigger and you're getting over 800 rounds per minute, like that's a problem. You're not going to stay in the fight very long because you you have limited capacity, especially as a, a concealed carry holder or uh, a police officer. When you're responding to a situation and that bad situation goes down, you're lucky if you knew that it was going to go down. Most of the time, you don't even know it's going to happen. No. So it's not like you've brought your whole arsenal with you and you've got 20 rounds of, you know, 20 mags with you to be able to swap out and stay in a big old gunfight. So just throwing a bunch of rounds down range is super sketchy, especially as a police officer. Like, you do not want your officers out there with fully automatic fire in majority of situations. If they know they're going into a high risk, you know, warrant situation, they got an active shooter. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely a purpose for suppressive fire, for, you know, for having select fire. Sure. But in the majority of the situations that officers are going to be involved in, it it wouldn't be advantageous to have full auto because you're responsible for every round that goes out. And if you're in, you're dealing with somebody in a civilian setting, you got to be worried about the houses and everything else that's behind it and around it and things that you can't even see. There could be somebody sitting behind a trash can on the road that you're having a shootout in, you know, you're responsible for those rounds. If you're just spraying, you're putting everybody's lives in danger. That's reckless abandon. And and that's, that goes for law enforcement or, or civilians, civilian. Yeah. 
if you're if you're in a situation where you have to defend yourself or others, then yeah, you need to be aware of where your rounds are going. You're, you're responsible for that. So that's my argument, I guess, is to the NFA, which is like it. There was a part of it that seems obvious that the fully automatic abilities were something that they wanted to deal with, and especially with the assault weapons ban, right? They basically said pre-1986, or sorry, the Brady Act, but pre-1986, you're just not going to be able to get it, right? Um, and, but it was it was this idea that automatic fire was like somehow beneficial or, or better, and it's like 99% of the time, no. If we're going to war, if we had China invade the United States, believe me, I would want to be able to have a select fire option if we were all going to have to band up and fight a, a foreign enemy like that. That well, would be possibly a critical thing. I would say even I, I could see a few other situations where I would want it. Now, typically, I think that a, a lot of times you have to have a, the firearm serves a designated purpose. So uh, an infantry rifle or something like, like we're talking about defensive a squad rifle. rifle. Yeah, that, that serves a different purpose than a squad rifle does, than a, a stationary machine gun does, than a technical. And right. So we've got uh, and a technical for people that don't know is a basically a mounted. Most of the time it's a 50 cal, but at least a 7.62, that kind of thing. But it's mounted into a vehicle. It's, it's an automatic it's a, weapon that's mounted onto a vehicle. Right. That you're, yeah. It happened a lot overseas in the desert environment. Yeah. I mean, even, even we, in, as the U S we have guns that we mount onto the Humvees that we're right. driving around. So it's essentially acts as a more maneuverable and less powerful tank. So yeah, less yeah. armored. Right. Sure. Well, and it is, it, it does serve an artillery function. Yes. And I, I will say real quick. Um, so the, uh, we had authorized privateers back in the war of 1812 that these people were going around and they had cannons on their, on their ships and they were going and they were taking British vessels and this was fully authorized by the U S government. And these were privately owned cannons. So essentially the, the direct translation to that nowadays I would say would be like technicals. Yes. (laughs) And and that was actually the war of 1812. James Madison, the writer of the bill of rights was the president at the time and signing off all of these letters of, of Mark that were allowing these, that were authorizing these These vessels to basically act as our Navy initially. Yeah. So, so yeah, he was perfectly fine with civilian ownership of cannons. Yeah. So, and a lot of times cannons were actually some of the spoils that people would take during, during as acting as those privateers. But anyway, so the thing is like, I, if, if I'm in a situation like we've seen this past year, we've seen a lot of crazy stuff. We've seen a lot of looters, rioters, um, mass shootings are up yeah, significantly. So we can actually no. last year there were, there were, there's uh, this year to date. I know there's already been over 140, what they consider to be mass shootings, more than two people this year, last year. I feel like there it was a drop that there was a lower number of mass shootings. Mm-hmm. Now murders went up last year, mm-hmm. but I, I'm almost positive that there was actual mass shootings were down from last yeah. year. And I guess this is another key difference I see between where I stand with my training and, and how I view firearms versus somebody who's ignorant to firearms and ignorant to the lifestyle of owning and carrying firearms is when I hear that there's more mass shootings, I'm like, I need to carry more yeah. because it means I could potentially like there's an uptick. Something's happening. Something's in the water. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the moon, but something's happening where this may be more relevant to be carrying a firearm on a regular basis to protect me and my family versus like, Hey, crime's down. Everything's down. Well, then I'm less likely to be wanting to carry a firearm. I'm like, okay, hey, everything's a little bit safer. You know, that's well, great. And the thing is you, <laughs> you still, even if you're less likely 
to to face that, I would still carry a firearm during that time mm-hmm. because you never know when that situation is going to arise. You could be that that odd statistic during the time of peace. Right. <laughs> somebody's somebody's the stat. Yeah. It, it, you know, these aren't distant things that happen in far off places. These are things that happen right down the street sometimes. You know, we we prepare for the worst and we hope for the best. Absolutely. And now and, and following that again during these these riots and stuff like that. None of them, as far as I've seen, have turned into like a full scale assault on ordinary people. There have been people that have been assaulted. Uh, most of the interactions are between officers and and the rioters and stuff. There are a lot of people who get hurt. A lot of time rioters within the rioters. Um, there's not there have been a lot of people that have been been, been hurt and been killed. I, there have been cases of people going into neighborhoods and creating a ruckus. Mm hmm and a disturbance, but not, uh, not barging into people's homes and trying to tear them out and stuff. But that's, I, that's a fear. That is a fear that I have that it could get to that point. Now, is it likely to get to that point? I don't think it's likely, but it is a possibility. It is just a few steps from what's going on, what, what has been going on. And you know, what has been going on is a few steps up from what happened previously. So, you know, that, that escalation is, is always a constant threat. And in that, in that possibility of escalation, we learned anything from COVID is how fragile this framework that we have is. I mean, we, we thought we were really secure financially. We thought we were secure economically. We thought we were secure as far as like, just like preparedness, like, oh yeah, I can handle, you know, a few days here and a few days there if I didn't have a job or if, you know, whatever, like, in your head, we were all in this position of like, everything's fine. Society's going to hold together. There's glue and it's holding it all together. There's not. We, we literally figured out real quick that it doesn't take long for the toilet paper to run off the shelves. And it, and it wasn't just the toilet paper. No. There started being supply issues on every front and that puts people into panic. That's all it took was to put people into panic. Yeah. It wasn't the virus itself. It was the reaction that normal people were having to the virus that caused the pandemic response. And that caused all sorts of issues that were way beyond the pale when it comes to just, you know, the COVID itself. But, um, but I think that, you know, again, the lack of preparedness scared people. You want to talk about scaring a hundred million gun owners in America? You're doing it right now. Yeah. You're, you're, you're scaring people. You're making people think that this is the direction the country is going to continue to head. So I, I just want to wrap up my point of saying that, you know, you're talking about use of an automatic weapon. Well, one of the, the reason why, you know, the, that automatic weapons were used, the reason that they were so effective in different times in World War One and World War Two, the main purpose of them is to be able to stop charges. Right. To be able to take out a swarm of enemies that's coming at you. So if you're getting ambushed or you're just getting a full frontal assault, so right. you get a chance if, to slow it. If you've got a, a riot, a mob coming at you, running in, like breaking into people's houses, dragging people out into the street, then yeah, you know what? I'd, I'd like to have a fully automatic weapon to try to, because that one shot going out in there, the, the intermittent firing, it may work. It may not. You, you very well can get overrun if those people are crazy enough. Mm-hmm. So that automatic fire is to try to keep that at bay. Now, again, we're looking at likelihood. I don't know, but the likelihood is that I'm not going to get mugged. So, but I still carry because it's a good idea. Cause if that does happen, then I'm prepared for it again. It's I'm uh, still a believer that it's not so much for the, the best prepare that, for the worst. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a thorough believer that <laughs> 
through the training that I had in law enforcement that my ultimate job is to deescalate a situation and to not get into a situation. And so I make active choices daily to put myself in places that I can trust that 99% of the time is going to be the outcome I expect. No, I, and I agree. That's why I'm not going out to these, these protests and stuff like that. And I'm not trying to, to counter protest people. Yeah. I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not going out and getting involved in that. Right. I, because I don't want to be put in that kind of a situation, but like, like a Kyle Rittenhouse situation where you got a guy attacking you, like trying to beat your head in with a skateboard and you got to turn around and shoot a rifle at him. So I, I don't want to be put in that situation. He made the stupid decision of going out there and, and being there where those hostilities Absolutely. were going on. So I, I don't want to go I, I and can't. do that. But the thing is, is if, if you've got there, there have been cases where protesters have gone in and they have invaded neighborhoods. And you saw that situation in St. Louis with the McCluskey's where they came in and they invaded the neighborhood. And that's, that is a scary situation to have people coming in and, and yelling and screaming and, you know, possibly doing doing vandalism and stuff, and you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know what they're going to get riled up well, into. And we saw in Ferguson when when this all kicked off with Mike Brown, uh, Ferguson had rolling riots where literally you had droves of people walking through neighborhoods, and you didn't know which neighborhood they were going to hit next. Police were trying to like, well, we got to crowd the group so they don't just keep tromping through people's yard and destroying stuff. So they try to limit where they're at. They're destroying buildings, burning stuff down. So you know, there's like. You never know when it's going to be your neighborhood that's the one that's in the way of their target or their their goals. Right. You know? So that's I, I can be staying in my house in my neighborhood and not asking for any sort of problem, mm -hmm. and it can still come to me. Absolutely. And so that's things like again, do I need an automatic rifle to fend off one home invader, even two or three home invaders? No, I don't. But I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if that riot's going to happen. I don't know if. The government's going to get crazy and start going around and and busting people. A lot of people are afraid that if they do pass these uh, some of the the weapons bans that they want to do or do the gun buyback, which I think is ridiculous because you never had it in the first place. So how can you buy it back? But if they're going around and trying to turn people into criminals, then you're going to have people coming after you for stuff that you do have a right to own. You do have a right to have a human right, not just the government recognized right. And you know what? If, if I'm put in that situation, you know, I, I would rather die fighting than live in tyranny. And, you know, I, 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 I pray that it never comes to that. And I don't think it's super likely to. I think that where we're seeing right now, a lot of a lot of people are starting to back down a little bit because like uh, I think it was Rasmussen came out with a recent poll and was showing that uh, support for gun control actions is dropped significantly and and i think when you see riots happening when you see your city getting destroyed i think you start realizing that you know it's it may it may be for me to start owning a gun <laughs> there are millions of new gun, gun owners from last year right like tons of them well the pandemic i think had a th if, even if you took the riots off the table from what happened in 2020 and you just looked at the response that people had the panic that set in a lot of people realized like you literally could have people turn on your neighbor turn on you just because of the stress they're under and they don't have resources and you do and they're going to come take your resources there's a lot of there's a lot of people that kind of woke up to the idea of like i'm responsible for my own security there's nothing law enforcement can really do until minutes after the danger is passed yeah so you know you, you got to start taking ownership of that and i think you know that that kind of all goes back to this you know when we talked about the second amendment 
and we bring up the NFA, this is all based on the same issue, which is your right to self-preservation, your right to feel safe and secure in your own country. And you take away that right from people or you infringe upon it and you start restricting abilities, not on arbitrary basis, not on, you know, something's well, well grounded, you know, like this is kind of like the nuclear versus, you know, (laughs) firearms discussion, right? Like there's, there's extremes to everything. But, um, but I think that's why we both wanted to hit these subjects is because they, there's a a theme, there's a storyline that's repeated itself and it will continue to repeat itself into the future. And the only way for us to remain free by what we see is to keep these individual rights. We need rugged individualism. We need people to take on the responsibility to handle their own security, to handle their own finances, to be responsible for themselves and make their own future and not rely on government because government will fail you. And I think a lot of people are seeing that a lot more people are seeing that. Yeah. And I, I, the last thing that I'll say is that what, what we've seen here, what, what I've tried to illustrate here, and I didn't say this from the beginning, but hopefully you can go back and you can list, you can see what I've said um, to make this point. The slippery slope is real. You know, it started with, like I said, in when we had the uh, the the whiskey rebellion back at the beginning of this nation, where we still said, you know what, we we had this. People are still able to own these firearms. We talked about last time the firearms that people are allowed to own, and what the support that was there by the founders, and going into what I talked about the the government striking down bans on cannons, saying you can't do this, all the way up to. Then in the 1900s, when they were trying to ban firearms and saying, well, we can't really ban them, but maybe Cause we, we know it's it. unconstitutional because yeah, that's definitely a violation of the Constitution. But maybe we can put these taxes on there to make it more difficult to own them to getting to the point where in 1968, where they said, no, we can outright ban this stuff. We're just going to completely violate that and, and, and ban this. And the the way that that has progressed to now, the AR-15 is the most popular rifle in America. It is very, very widely owned. And they're trying to ban it. They're trying to say, you can't have this. And we want you to turn them in. That this is, it's not even about the specific rifle. It's about like, this is, this is coming to a point where it's the, this is the ability to own firearm period. It's not about what, what firearm. Well, and, and handguns are responsible for a lot more crimes than rifles. All of rifles combined, I want to say it was 2018 that the statistics, all of all of long guns, all of all of rifles combined, whether it's the AR-15 or your uncle's hunting rifle or whatever, totaled to less than 300 deaths in that for that year. Yeah. And that's not outside of the that, that is not outside of the trend. Handguns counted for, I want to say it was I want to say it was like five times that amount for, for handguns. Mm-hmm. So yes, they're trying to ban these. It's not going to stop there. It has never stopped there. It has always progressed. The slippery slope is real. This is all grown from people steadily saying, okay, what can we get away with? What can we push for? It's not, if, if we allow this to happen, it's going to come and they're going to say, okay, well, we're taking away your handguns. And then it's going to come and say, okay, well, we're taking away your shotguns and your rifles. Just ask the UK. Just, yeah. The UK, uh, 
Australia. Great Britain. Uh, yeah, Australia. Um, I was just, I said Great Britain and I was thinking of Australia. <laughs> New Zealand. Yeah. Know, th- this is this has happened. This is there's been that slippery slope. We have already seen it in throughout our history. And to think that, hey, it's gonna stop here is completely ignores history. Yeah. Completely ignores what we have already seen to happen. Which is why we are going to continue to cover history on especially these segments for the sake of argument, because there needs to be this discussion. It needs to be out there. This isn't something we need to be quiet about. It's something we need to talk and discuss and understand the nuance, but we really need to understand the history of where we got to today and why it matters so that we can even have more colorful conversations. Cause honestly, we've been pretty dry with these conversations, but it's necessary. This is the foundation that leads us into a whole lot of other discussions about more current topical issues that are more relevant to like our future and our children's future. So, Red, I really appreciate you coming out today, man. It was a lot of fun. We missed Grizzly. It was a lot of fun on the last podcast, just kind of riffing, having a good time. Um, But I think the podcasts are going to get more like that. They're going to get more to where we get to be a little more off the cuff because these historical foundational blocks that we need to keep getting in place will kind of help those future discussions. Right. And I think that we can try to we can we'll definitely have things where we are talking about stuff that is factually based, giving out information and we can have stuff. We can have conversations where it's more about, you know, personal, personal input, personal experience. And I hope that I would really love it if we could get some people out in here that have that have opinions that are on the other side. Absolutely. That we can sit here and we can have discourse. Yeah. I feel like that's more and more of a challenge nowadays to find somebody that's willing to have a, a rational a healthy discourse. discussion. Yes, a, a healthy discussion, rational discourse. But I, I really, I pray that we can. Yeah. All right, Red. With that, man, we're out of here.